Amato's fifth quarter is partnered with the Inner Sanctum. The Inner Sanctum, founded in 2020, is the new ball game in sports journalism, which aims to take you behind the closed doors of sporting clubs around the country in an effort to tell the stories of those on the field. Visit the Inner Sanctum at www.theinnersanctum.com.au as well as following them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. The Inner Sanctum, unique interviews, unique content for you. This is Travis Stoltz. This is Greg Oddy. This is Carson Edwards. This is Brett Maher. This is Dale Pickett. This is Eugene Greenwich. This is Kevin Brooks. This is Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Dale McDonald. This is Sam Jacobs. This is Cal Brooks. This is Marcus Burns. This is Sean Redditch. This is Tony Spackenthal. This is Andrew Blahoff. This is Graham Corn. This is Brian Curl. This is Jason Ackermanis. This is Chris McDermott. This is Mike Ellis. This is Kevin Lich. This is Matt Smith. This is Michael Brooks. This is Brendan T. This is Jordan McMahon. This is Brett Burt. And you're listening to a Mato's fifth quarter. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 28 of Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast. I'm your host, Dan, and for tonight's episode, we've got an Adelaide Crows fan favourite. It's Brett Burton, the Birdman, who joins me tonight. Now, originally from Wyala, South Australia, Brett Burton was always pretty much destined to be an athlete of some kind. He did do athletics as a kid, as well as playing hockey and AFL. Played for the Woodville West Torrens in the SNFL before getting picked up in the 1998 draft by the Adelaide Crows. His first season in the AFL was 1999 under Malcolm Blight. We talk about his relationship with Malcolm Blight and his very, very impressive first season in 1999, which overall was a disappointing season from Adelaide, finishing 13th after winning back-to-back premierships. But for Brett Burton personally, it was a very, very good debut season. His relationship with Gary Ayres and the 2002 season, which was arguably the best season in his career, 52 goals, played every game and was very unlucky to not be in the All-Australian squad. 2005 and 2006 preliminary finals, which even after all these years, so many Crow supporters still talk about 05-06 and those those two prelim finals, the opportunities uh, to play in a grand final gone begging. He does talk about that in quite good, uh, quite, quite in-depth detail, which was which was great. He was also happy to talk about the uh, 2008 season, which uh, was cut short for him through his ACL injury, his rehab and recovery, and and sort of the mental toll it takes on you when you're out on the sidelines injured and you're watching your team play on the field. So that was very interesting. And of course, one thing I think a lot of people are keen to hear about is that amazing 2009 mark against Carlton at Etihad Stadium, where he jumped on the Ruckman's shoulders and got the second lift while he was up there. 
I asked him to sort of talk us through the moment when he was running up, taking the mark, the ball goes in his hands and he gets the elevation. That was really, really awesome to, to, to hear about. And we also do touch on his position at Adelaide post-playing, the much spoken about Adelaide Crows preseason camp and his involvement with that, as well as talking about the things he's doing now, uh, including uh, working in the mental health space. And he did bring up some very important topics. And I do just want to say, if anyone out there is struggling, please reach out, please talk to somebody. It's very important and it is never weak to speak. So if you, everyone, it doesn't matter who you are, we are all in some way dealing with mental health and it's very important that you do speak to somebody if you are struggling. And I'm really excited for you all to listen to uh, particularly that part of the interview where he does go into detail about what he's doing now with mental health and how we can all deal with mental health uh, to the best of our ability. Throughout the Birdman's career from 1999 to 2010, he played 177 games for the Adelaide Crows, scored 264 goals, he played in 13 finals, he's a two-time Adelaide Crows leading goal kicker in 2002 and 2008, and he was of course the winner of the AFL Mark of the Year in 2009. Let's get this episode underway from the Adelaide Football Club, it's Brett Burton, about to come onto the ground. Sixty meters out, looks at a goal square. Burton lurking. Oh, oh he's brought the house down. <laughs> it was right towards the top of the goal square. Burton, a spectacular leap, and he takes the mark. Rules it long. Burton will have another sit here. He goes high. He takes the hanger. <laughs> Tip it. Burton. Oh, that's one of the marks of the century. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter and got a very big guest from the Adelaide Football Club. It's Brett Burton on the show. Birdman, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast here tonight. No worries, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Any time at all. So it was 2010 when you played your final AFL game, which was already over a decade ago. It's pretty hard to believe. Since then, you've obviously stayed in football for a majority of the time. Uh, with a couple of clubs now. I reckon we'll kick off the show just by asking if you could give the listeners a bit of an insight into what you've been up to in the last sort of 10, 11 years and the journey for you post-football 2010 to 2021. Yeah, so I guess I was a, a late starter to, to AFL footy and was a bit of a late developer. So I, uh, I didn't get drafted until I was 20, which uh, in hindsight was a, was a really good thing because it uh, allowed me to um, you know, finish school and and go and do um, some university study. So I was, uh, by the time I got drafted, you know, I completed two years of a, an undergraduate degree in um, in human movement or the old sports science. So my first year of AFL footy in 1999, we were still kind of, uh, still kind of part-time era there. Malcolm Blight was our coach. And I, I think I remember we, we trained 8 till 10 in the morning and then 5 till 7 at night. So largely it was people still able to hold their jobs or, or do study. So I was able to finish that undergraduate degree and my first year of footy. And then about three or four years into my, my footy career, I, I went back and uh, completed an honours degree, which you know, took me about you know, three and a half, four years so part-time. But that gave me a really good grounding to um, to have that uni degree behind me and, and always had a a love for um, high-performance sport and, and science and, you know, trying to understand how do we uh, improve and how do we get better and, and why do things happen. So I spent some time uh, further study and, and kind of work placements around that area and so that allowed me to transition straight into a high-performance role out of footy and I was lucky enough to get to get a position as a high-performance manager of the Brisbane Lions straight out of footy, so which, 
we're certainly pretty uh, yeah, rare for someone of, of my age, but given the time was right and, and actually, um, you know, Mike Boss was a, certainly um, a big play, uh, that decision, and, um, you yeah, know, provided the opportunity and that kind of started my journey as a, as a high performance manager. Yeah, that's a really interesting story, and, and I do ask this question a lot as well. Do you think it's important for professional athletes to have something away from the game, so to, to study like you did or to have other interests because you never know when your last game's going to be? Yeah, absolutely. It's critical and for a variety of reasons. For when you're in the game, um, we know that there's always going to be issues with form or, or injury or win-loss. And, and so got all your um, your self-worth and your value in, in just footy, then um, you know, you could, that can be a bit of a, a shaky ground. And, and certainly um, I didn't necessarily um, plan that in terms of um, my footy career, but certainly when uh, I was involved in off-field roles, particularly in high performance and and, uh, and the head of footy role over the last 10 years, we proactively uh, you know made sure that players were doing things away from football, um, and so they had interest there away from footy, whether that was structured university or, or a part-time work or work placement or at least you know, something that they could put their time and energy into that was fulfilling for them and um, provided them that sense of worth because you, you're just tied up in your value and your self-worth as, as a footballer and, and it's not going so well for you, then um, can, you can get yourself into, I guess, some challenges around mental health. So it's really, really important in the Player Association of, uh, you know, and the clubs have recognised that uh, you know, a long time ago and, and it's certainly funded and, and made sure that there's programs and support um, in those areas. So, yeah, absolutely critical. Yeah, so true. So going back to the, the early years, you are just like myself, born and bred in South Australia. You're originally from Wyala. Could you maybe yeah. give the listeners some insights into your upbringing, family life, your memories from Wyala, and of course, when you started playing football? Yeah, well, you know, my parents were from Wyala, and you know, his, his father was in the railways, and so he, he, I think he went to about 13 or 14 different schools around country South Australia over his, uh, over his journey, so he had quite a tough upbringing, and, and going from you know, place to place, and, and as you know, you know, a challenge when you're getting uprooted and, uh, and having to adapt all the time, but he settled in Wyala as as, a, as an adult and uh, I met my mum there and, and we lived there until I was 10 years old and, and so I started playing football for uh, Rapina Wyala and uh, that was six years old. That was good fun in the under under 10s and obviously when you're you know, that young you, you don't get too much of it in, in those days when you're, uh, when you're only small but really enjoyed it and then we, we moved down to Adelaide when I was 10 years old and, and that was largely through my parents wanting to give us the best opportunity in, uh, in sport. My, my brother was starting to involved in the association sides and and um and that and, and that was to give him an opportunity and also um you know myself with athletics and and hockey and, and footy so yeah that was you know my parents made that decision to go well let's uh, give our kids the best opportunity to um do what they want to do from a from a sporting point of view and or i guess also from an education point of view so we moved down to adelaide in 1987 and you know it was in the west torrens zone and the opportunity to play uh some of my junior um, you know, footy through there as uh, you know, the rep sides and under 12s and, and so on as you do and playing for Flinders Park on, on weekends and yeah that was the kind of journey through to, to playing um, you know, seniors with the Eagles and then uh, into the AFL. So was football always the number one gig in terms of sport for you? No, it, well it wasn't it wasn't necessarily. I uh, fortunately blessed with good genetics in, in, uh, in running and, and uh, my aerobic capacity was pretty good and so I Doing a lot of cross country and, and you know, 800 1500 in uh, my athletics, and so that took me, uh, I guess, on a journey with um, with that and various state teams and that kind of thing. And and hockey was, was similar, and and so footy wasn't necessarily my best sport during that period from you know maybe 12 through to 
15, and um, but then I gave the athletics away. I didn't mind the athletics, but I didn't. I favoured the uh, the team sports. I really enjoyed doing things with other people and and had that camaraderie and the, I guess working hard with others for the for a similar goal and a similar vision. And so I gave the athletics away at 15 and and concentrated on um, on footy and then and footy and, and hockey clashed at different times and. In the end, I think it was around about you know, 15, 16, I, I chose just to concentrate on footy. And yeah, that was obviously a, a good decision. You know, I love footy, but I wasn't necessarily in any of the rep side through that period. I was quite small for my age. I, was, you know, I remember being 19 and only around about 5 foot 8. So I, was, I hadn't had my, my growth spurt yet. And I, I played two years of, in a four pocket in the under-17s and the under-19s for the worst Torrens. And I guess if you're any uh, any good and have aspirations to play uh, league footy and, and even AFL, you, as we know now, guys, that most guys are getting drafted when they're 18 years of age. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily um, you know on my radar. Well, I uh, wanted to play AFL and wanted to play SNFL league footy. It, was, it certainly didn't look like a reality at that stage. So I couldn't even uh, you know break into the reserves, let alone league side at the age of 19. But I then had, you know, since under 19s and... In one off season, I just had a growth spurt. I went from five foot eight to six foot in uh, over the off season, and you know, being too old for the juniors, I, I had to go and train with the, the reserves and the and the, uh, and the league side. And Mark Mickle was the uh, was a, the lead coach at that stage, and given my capacity to run and you know, my genetics around the long running, I was able to, to win all the preseason runs. And so I guess that put me uh, in the spotlight, and you know, tend to favour those people that have good work ethic and, and put in the put in the hard yards so he gave me an opportunity on a wing and and look it just went from there I, did, I went from literally under 19s and a full pocket one year to plan um, every game in the uh, the league uh, at Sennar Ford the next year and, and got drafted at the end of that year to the Crows so quick change in my footy uh, career and I guess I never looked back from that period on. Yeah it's amazing how quickly things can happen isn't it? Yeah it is it's uh, I, I remember uh, always had the ability to jump and always loved we would always play marks up as you did at recess time and lunch time and that was pretty much every recess time and lunch time through primary school and high school and, and fortunately because I was small I could come from the back and run and jump on the pack and you know you didn't have to be you weren't the big guy that would stand there and you know wait for other people to jump on you so I always had that practice of doing that and, and I remember vividly as a young fella um, in primary school and high school really first both my parents worked and so we were home at, uh, you know during school holidays so was about entertaining yourself and I, I remember always kicking the ball up to myself in the front yard or the backyard and just running and, and jumping and uh, my dad always taught me to take the ball at the highest point so I guess it's really to, to read the ball and, and read the flight, flight in the in the air came from those days of just practicing and practicing over and over again and but I wasn't I wasn't allowed to do it as a, as a you know under 17 under 19 I remember my coaches you know always telling me you're a crummer you don't don't fly for the mark that's for the big guys you get front and square and and so I, I largely wasn't able to do it in my in my juniors. So you know when I, when I had that growth spurt and moved to centre forward in the league, obviously in marking position, um, I, I suddenly got the license to be able to do that. And that, along with my ability to be able to run, I was playing on guys that were at least enough back, were six three, six three, six four, and um, were bigger guys. And I was only six foot, but I had that ability to be able to run. So I just kept on the move. And you know, I don't remember I was about seventy kilos ring and wet, so I wasn't, you know, wasn't big enough to get into a strength <laughs> contest with them. So I just ran around and, and jumped and, and had a had a ball doing it. Fortunately enough, created enough enthusiasm, and Crows and a few other clubs saw enough in me to eventually get me drafted next year. Awesome insight. So you were, of course, as we said, picked up by the Adelaide Crows for that 1999 season. Now, at that time, the Crows had just come off back-to-back premierships with the likes of a young Andrew McLeod, Tyson Edwards, Simon Goodwin, uh, Mark Rusciuto, Sean Wren, Ben Hart, Darren Jarman, 
all these famous names led by a man known as the Messiah and Malcolm Blight. What are your memories of, of that time getting drafted and walking into the club at that particular time? Yeah, well, it was certainly daunting and uh, daunting, and, and even more so given the fact I, I was a Crow supporter. You know, my, my parents had signed us up as Crow supporters when they came into the competition in, you know, in 1990, and we'd actually been to the to the grand final and, and watched them win the premiership in 98. And, oh, you actually so, win? Yeah, yeah, I was oh, there excellent. at the game as a Crow supporter, and, you know, mum and dad bought the tickets and we drove over and, and had a had an absolute ball, and, you know, it's an amazing experience, so... It was very surreal to be, um, I guess, in, in September watching them win the, win the grand final and then November, a couple of months later, getting drafted by them. So it was, for a young guy, it was just a dream come true. And it was a weird lead up, as it is with, with the draft. For, for most kids, I, I think, you know, I went to the draft camp and I think I'd, I spoke to, you know, 15 of the 16 clubs and um, I had the, actually had the Western Bulldogs call me uh, the day before the draft and, and just say, look, we're, we're probably going to take with, I think it was pick eight or pick nine or something, something around there. And, if, if the, all things go to plan, that they think we're, we're going to happen ahead of, ahead of their pick, but but of pick sixteen, and I was still there, and I remember watching uh, watching it, and Jan Fantasia was there with you know, Malcolm Blight, and I think there might be one other at the, at the table, and and they, there was quite a, a, a big delay, and they had you know, how long they had back in those days, maybe three three minutes or five minutes on the clock to make a decision. There was quite a, a bit of discussion, and. Um, yeah, you know, obviously called out my name in the end, but uh, you know when I asked James Fantasia after, well, how, how can you you know delayed so long? And they and they, they thought that you know I was going to be gone by then. But I think the my age was uh, I guess a little bit of a, a factor in terms of some clubs going well. We've not eighteen, we're not going to get as long out of him, and, and maybe that's and, and being South Australian as well. It's um you know sometimes they. Back back then, they uh, didn't get as, as much look, um, but it was fortunate for me. And Crows picked me up, and um, and that was the uh, end of that story in terms of uh, getting drafted. And then I, you know, walked into the club, and yeah, it was very surreal walking you know, walking into a you know locker room with with all those guys that you you know watched and admired from from afar. So unfortunately, you know, Tony Modra had, had just moved out from the club, so that was a bit of a shame because he was a big uh, mark taker and um, and loved watching him. So that was a bit of a shame, but uh, it was just so good to meet the other guys and. And then, you know, you, back in those days, you, you didn't say boo you, until you were spoken to and, and asked to speak. You just did your thing quietly and, and worked hard and, and tried to get an opportunity. So 1999 is, well, it's really known in AFC history as arguably the most disappointing season because obviously 97, 98 premiers and then 13th in 99. But a lot of people, myself included, consider you as the rare shining light that year because you were one of the most consistent players in, in that 99 season. 21 out of 22 games, 25 goals. You made a name for yourself as one of the most exciting players, taking the high-flying marks, and every week you were contributing. I'm sure that's that debut season is one you look at quite fondly. Yeah, it is. It's funny enough. It was it was actually the highest I'd ever finished in the best and first for my whole career, and 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 one of the only years that I literally had hardly any injuries. I uh, you know I missed the last game to a rib injury, but every uh, every other game I was healthy and, and fit and able, and I think I missed over a hundred games through my career, and and most of those injuries were you know medium to long term. They were six to eight week ankles or knees or collarbones, and they did my ACL as well. It was twelve months, so. It was a really enjoyable year for a lot of reasons. One, because first year in footy, and, and as we know, it's um, not often you, you get straight into a side, but I guess I had a few things in my favour. In fact, that I was a, that little bit older, and, and also the Crows had a fair, a fair few injuries during that year. And, 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 and look, you don't, I guess you don't, when you start off, you don't have too much expectation. You just, you, you're literally you know, jumping out of your skin and, and thriving with the opportunity given. And, and Malcolm Blight was really good for me. You know, he was just a 
fantastic coach for me at that time because he just he saw in me the the, uh, the ability to mark and, and play attacking footy, and he loved that. And so he gave me the license to jump and uh, and go for my marks and uh, and play the way I wanted to play. So it was a really uh, fortunate start to, to my AFL career to be uh, you know with a club that uh, all those things added up. Um, just gave me an opportunity, and, and I certainly um, you know, look back at it in terms of fun times and and also the marking. You, you know when you first come into the competition. You, you don't get checked, and you don't. People don't know you, so you get a bit more leeway. And, and you know, after certainly after those uh, that first year, I, I guess I certainly um, had a, a bit of a target uh, on my back in terms of you know not giving them, myself the, getting the space to, to mark, and, and you get held, and 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 obviously get more time put into you. So that's that's the game, and um, and so yeah, so it was a it was a really enjoyable first year, and um, and definitely one that I look back at and uh, with fond memories. So what was your relationship like with Malcolm Blight? You, you briefly mentioned it just then, but did you have much to do with him personally in, you know, in that one and only season you played under him? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I was playing every game and, and, and certainly had uh, a lot to do with him. He was And he was fantastic for me. You know, I haven't got you know, a bad word to say about our relationship. It was, it was really good. He was, he was a hard coach, but a really fair coach for me. And, and as I said, just gave me plenty of confidence to play that I wanted to play and... and yeah, I wouldn't say hard, but look, he was really positive for me and, and, and gave me lots of opportunity and yeah, he would still tell me when, when things went right, which, which is uh, absolutely fair enough. We needed, uh, need to know, you know, when things need to be changed and, and he, you know, gave me that feedback, but he was, he was very good for me. And from all reports that, you know, to the, to the other guys that have been around for, um, a couple of years, and I'm sure Malcolm would, you know, would agree with, uh, with this. He, he wasn't the same coach uh, that year as he was the other years. He, he clearly, fatigued by it and, and it just gotten to the point where he had had enough and obviously pulled the pin at the end of that season you know and that wasn't because of you know the results necessarily it was just because he just uh, he was just burnt out he just had enough and so he obviously recognized that and, and went well I think I'm just going to pull the pin here and, and hand it over to someone else so now from my perspective a great opportunity to be able to um, play under him and only got uh, good things to say. Yeah excellent we've obviously established 99 wasn't a great season for the club it was a good year for you, but not the club as a whole. But one thing a lot of people forget is is the start of the season was actually very good. You started the season 4-2, which was better than 97 and 98. As a, f- a young player, did you ever, or do you ever as a young player, get caught in the trap of thinking, gee, this is easy, we're going to ease to the finals and it's all just going to happen? I know it was very early in the season, but do you ever think, Gee, I'm going to be a part of a of a finals campaign, a possible premiership. Nah, nah. Look, it's, you, you don't you don't have those thoughts, particularly as a young guy. You look, you, literally in, in your first year of footy, you, you, you're just happy to get a game. So, and you, you speak to most most young players in their first you know year or two of footy, they're just pumped to, to be playing. I mean, there's 40 odd players on the list, and um, and so only 22 get to play each week. And so it's really about it's the time in your career where you are, I guess, a little bit insular and, and thinking more individual than team. Then that's just natural because you're you're trying to find your way and trying to um, you know, get respect and and, and you. You got all these thoughts about well, you know, I've been drafted, but am I good enough to play at the level? And and yeah, so there's just so much going on. So there was no, there's certainly no thoughts around what could be and and what could happen. And and look, I think that most players, even uh, you know nowadays, in the first half of the season, it's, I know there's that thought from um, people uh, watching on, and, and this is in any sport that hey, you're getting ahead of themselves. Look, I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to that theory. I think you just you literally take each game as it is, and can sometimes drop away from. Um, your, your, your habits and, and get distracted and that, but I don't think you ever he- get ahead of yourself in terms of going, wow, we're, you know, we're, we're um, 
halfway through the season we could win the premiership. But it's not really towards the end of the season you start to you know, have those thoughts about going well. You want to see how have you gone against every team in the competition, and, and not until you you know obviously get through to round 16 back then or, or round 18 now to, to be actually get a, a measuring stick in terms of every side in the comp. Yeah, fair answer, definitely. Going ahead a few seasons now, uh, a season I've been really keen to talk to you about is 2002. Gary Ayres is the coach at this point in time and the Crows finish in the top four and make the preliminary final. That's probably, if not the best year, definitely one of your best seasons. You played every game this year. You kicked over 50 goals, leading goal kicker at the club, and you were probably unlucky not to be considered for All-Australian. That that season as a whole, why do you think the Crows just couldn't quite get over the hump and, and get into a grand final that year? I wonder what we can add to that next week with Collingwood playing off in a grand final. 88,000 people here today. They are going to make one mighty roar when the siren rings. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, when you when you lose preliminary finals, you're so close. You're down to the last four, and there's obviously two teams that go ahead and play in the grand final, and two teams that miss out. So it's you do you need some luck on your side, and you need to take the opportunity. And you know we see that throughout history. You look back at the the days of Port Adelaide and Brisbane being so dominant, and and Port generally to you know losing those prelims, but then they they get over that and win one, and then and they win a premiership in 2004. So you know I, I don't necessarily see it as a a massive failure, but it's really just about taking opportunities at the time. And and I remember that game. You know, we I think we lost to Collingwood at um, yeah at the G. And it's a huge crowd, the loudest, loudest crowd I've ever played in front of. And I think we were, we lost Tyson Edwards to you know I think he got um, felled and and someone got reported for, for for taking him out. And then Andy McLeod was injured. And so there's just a few little things that just didn't go our way, and and we just weren't good enough for whatever reason on the day. So. We were certainly up and about, and, and then the next year you obviously drop off, and um, and then you know Gary gets moved on, and um, and Neil Craig comes in. But I think it sometimes you need to you need to knock on the door a few times, and before you before you you get it, and, and then get in, and um, you know we even see that now with the teams that are around the mark, but don't necessarily in Port have been like the last couple of years. Brisbane have been the same. So many things that need to go right, and I think that we underestimate that sometimes. That uh, you know you need to have. Your list healthy. You need to, you know, have players in the right form at the right time, and and, and it's all happening for you. For it, uh, you get that uh, that last day in September, and um, and then you obviously got to take the opportunity on the day and, and handle the pressure of the occasion, which you know isn't uh, isn't easy either. We we saw that in 2017 when you know we're certainly the best team in the comp that year, and but you you have uh, you know every player that's played that played that day for the Crows and for Richmond that for that matter too. I think um, hadn't played a, a grand final, and so you. When you haven't experienced something before, you, you just don't know how people uh, are going to react and respond. And um, and some people step up to the occasion and, and thrive, and other people, um, you know, are challenged by the pressure and, and the, the expectation and experience of it. And so, all an experience. So you, you know, you go from there, and, and fingers crossed, you get another opportunity. So during that time, a lot has been said about Gary Ayres. Some people say that, or some people love him. Some people didn't like him. What was your view of Gary Ayres? Oh look, uh, I, I saw positives out of all the coaches I had. You know, they, they all provided uh, different things for me and and helped my footy. And again, you know, I was only between my second and my sixth year of, of footy, so I'm still largely learning. And and you know, I take something from every coach that I was involved with. There, the um, yeah, he was he was very hard in terms of standards and and you know, competitive as he as he you know he, the way he played his footy, just an absolute competitor. And and so he instilled that in. Um, you know, in the teams that he uh, he coached and, and and players that played for him. So 
I learned uh, a lot out of Gary. He gave me an opportunity on a wing there for a while, which was great. I really enjoyed playing on the wing. Unfortunately, through team injury and that, given my marking ability, I ended up playing forward as well. But I played some of my best footy under under Gary and, and had some great years playing on the wing. So I don't think there was anything from my perspective that was was an issue. But you know, collectively, obviously, you know, the team didn't perform and and had a drop off you know, over that that period, and we, we dropped off quite significantly after the uh, you know that 2002 preliminary final, and I guess the club and the the leaders of the organisation at that time thought that, that the team was underperforming for the talent we had, and and I guess that uh, you know showed to be true because uh, Neil Craig came in and. Um, first year we were, we were minor premiers so that history will show that it was was a, was a positive change for the footy club and both five or six we finished first and, and I, think, I think second or third in, in, in 06 and um, made prelims but uh, again just couldn't get it done on the day for a variety of reasons and, um, and so you, again you can be the uh, the best team in the competition during the year but if you, if you don't take the opportunities on the day then um, it doesn't come to fruition. And that's one chapter of the Crows' history that people still talk about all the time. 2005 and 2006, the Crows were right up there in both seasons, first and second respectively, but you just couldn't get over that hump and on both occasions you lost to the Eagles. What do you think it was that you just couldn't get over West Coast? West Coast by 16 and they are into the grand final to take on the Sydney Swans next Saturday. Coast Eagles met almost by silence. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? In 05, you know, I remember we played West Coast in the last game of the season in round 22 and we, we went to Subiaco to, to play them and whoever won that game was going to be minor premiers and, and, and we beat West Coast. We, we beat them in Subiaco, which is, as we understand, no mean feat um, even today in today's footy. It's, it's very hard to win in Perth. And so that was a big result and, and gave us a lot of confidence. But I, th- I think, I'm pretty sure we come back on a six-day break after that game into the first final, which, you know, obviously... Yeah, St Kilda. Yeah, St Kilda. And that doesn't happen these days. You, you always get, you, you get the bye before the... For the first finals now, although it was different this year, obviously with COVID, but um, you know, for a lot of years now, they've had the finals by, and also finishing top, you don't get a six-day break, and 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 we also had Mark Bashuto get reported in that in that game, and you know, we were we were just on our journey um, with Neil Craig in terms of you know leadership and and learning to carry the to uh, spread the load in terms of leadership and not and on-field leadership and impact on the game, and Mark Bashuto at that time, captain of the footy club, was it was a large had a large impact on, on results with the way he played and the way he led and, and so not having him in that first final and uh, you know I remember the game against St Kilda and it was a wet night we didn't play our best footy we come back from uh, you know Subiaco which is, is never easy uh, coming back from a from a Perth trip physically and, and, and we just didn't play good footy and St Kilda were too good for us on the night and, and so then you get pushed to the other side of the draw and, and Sydney were as, as West Coast were animuses, Sydney were, were West Coast animuses for for a while there too, and and um, Sydney beat West Coast over there in, in the other final, second be third, and, and so that put them back in our, our side of the draw, and and we uh, you know we we end up having to I think we played Port the next week and, and won easy one by eighty odd points, and then but then had to go back on the road for the prelim final over in Perth. West Coast were just too good for us. So again, as, as I said, your ability to take opportunities, you win that first game against St Kilda, and and then you're on the side of the draw with Sydney, and you know. I think to quote me on it, but I reckon for the last seven or eight years of, of certainly of my career, we hadn't lost to Sydney. You know, we didn't lose to Sydney. We were, we were always able to beat Sydney. We just for whatever reason matched up against them well. 
but Sydney kept on playing on the other side of the draw in, in both that 05 and 06 final series. And so we, we didn't get an opportunity to play Sydney in the final. And so we kept you know, we met West Coast in, in 06. And 06 was, again, we jumped out of the blocks and, and won a whole heap of games early. And, and then we did fall in a bit of a hole. You know, physically, we um, certainly in a, in a bit of a hole late in the season. I think, you know, I remember we, we lost four of our last five games, I reckon, going into the finals. And there was one thing about and Neil Craig was he trained us very hard and we got the benefits out of that because we were a super fit side and we were able to you know, match it with anyone but uh, you know it's always a balance about how you fit physically and, and, and no doubt we were you know, a little bit fatigued at the back end of that season but then it would come into the final series and, and we were okay and but again that, that preliminary final was all about taking our opportunities and I remember um, I think we're up at, uh, at half-time by maybe three goals and um, it was actually my first game back for about six weeks. I'd come off a, a hamstring uh, tendon injury. And yeah, that's right. I think, I think I think Andy McLeod had come off a, a knee clean out and, and maybe even Matty Bode as well. And I remember sitting on the bench with them at, at half uh, start of the third quarter and they were the days when, when you're on the bench, you're on the bench, you know, and, and it wasn't uh, high rotations. It was only probably 30-odd rotations for the game and, and wasn't you know, what we see in the game now. And so... You know, I remember just watching and, and literally within about five or six minutes of the first quarter, the, you know, the results changed and, and um, we lost that three-goal lead and the momentum sw- swung and, and then we were able to get back and, and get close. But I think we ended up going down by you know, less than two goals in the end. And again, when it's that close, it, it's really just about who takes the opportunities. And um, I mean, they were a tough side. They had, you know, Cousins and Kerr and Judd and Cox in the midfield and... and I remember uh, Cousins just having a phenomenal second half and, um, you know, we had Nathan Bambrello tagging him and Nathan was one of our best runners in, and certainly our best tagger in, in the side and he set up with He just could not keep up with him and, and you know, we now... Uh, we know that you know Ben had just an unbelievable capacity to hurt himself on the field in terms of you know pushing himself to the limits. Uh, an, an absolute awesome footballer and uh, an awesome to watch, and certainly um, you know with a large uh, impact on on that game of uh, footy and um, and the reason why they were able to go on and make the grand final. And, and fortunately for them, actually, win, win, the, win the premiership was actually good to. Yeah, good for them to win it because you know West Coast and, and us were um were the certainly best two teams in that through the, throughout the season for those two years and and Sydney were I think third which would see West Coast um get one and, and Sydney get one given we uh, we didn't get there. Yeah, and that's so you've played in three losing prelims and I've had I've had Tyson Edwards on the show and and spoke to him about this as well. Let's say had you had beaten Collingwood in two thousand and two, I'm I'm not sure how you would have gone against Brisbane because they were just incredible but pretty awesome yeah yeah but but i personally feel and this is my opinion i i feel in 2005 and 2006 had you beaten west coast i truly do think you would have won back-to-back premierships because as good as the swans were and you mentioned it earlier you guys just knew how to play them especially under neil craig now do you do you ever look back at particularly 0506 and did you still think about that after all these years or are you of the mindset that you just got to move on Oh, look, I'm definitely, of the, you know, I don't live in the past too much. I'm a big believer in the fact of look forward, the rear vision mirror for, for looking behind and, and it doesn't give you too much. You've got to look through the, through the windscreen and look forward because you, you can't change the past. That said, I certainly recognise when you do have these conversations or you, you catch up with, maybe not teammates, but certainly uh, you, know, you see supporters and they mention at 0506. It was a lost opportunity, no doubt. You know, I think that, um, you know, you don't know what happens on the on the day, but Absolutely, we would have given the history with Sydney and, and our ability to win against them over all those years. Um, you would have backed yourself in to beat Sydney in those grand finals, but 
the reality is it doesn't matter because we didn't and, and history shows um, you know, West Coast won one and Sydney won the other but there's no doubt that, that they were missed opportunities and, and look that's footy and that sport there's plenty of occasions where um, teams go in favourite and I mean even look at you know look at Glenelg in the SNFL you know last weekend they, they're they win 17 out of 18 games throughout the season and so they would rightly go in there thinking that they've been the best team for the year but they don't get the, the result on the, on the day so that's sports and it's moments like those that can um, change careers and change uh, clubs and, and, and history but it's also the, uh, the reason we love sport as well because no result is guaranteed. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get. All right, everyone. It's time for a quick quarter time break here on A5Q. Recently, I've become an ambassador of Pete and Pedro, the kings of men's hair and beard grooming. The days of the caveman are now over, gentlemen. We all need to keep on top of our hygiene, cleanliness, and style too. Unfortunately, most chemist store products do not achieve this efficiently. So if you want high quality results, you're going to have to go for high quality products. Pete and Pedro, established in 2013, offers premium hair, beard, and grooming products and tools for any well-groomed man. These products are actually going to get in there, moisturize, rehydrate, and clean your scalp, hair, and beard thoroughly without putting a hole in your wallet. From shampoos and conditioners to hair gels and putties, beard oils, brushes, combs, and even nail clippers, Pete and Pedro has it all. Now, I would never promote a brand I did not use or trust. Guys, I've been using Pete and Pedro products for the past two years and can confidently say there are no better hair and beard products on the market. Gentlemen, if you are looking to take your hair game to that next level without breaking the bank, you've got to check out Pete and Pedro. And if you use my special discount code, DMATO10, spelled D-A-M-A-T-O-1-0, you're going to get 10% off your purchase for a limited time only, so get in quick. The link to Pete and Pedro is down in the description below. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get back to the show. So we'll move on to a couple of years later. So 2008, you're arguably in career best form again. You've kicked 30 goals by round 15. And against Collingwood, you go down with an ACL injury. What are your memories of that day? And do you actually remember the moment you got injured? Standing start. Ball works inside the fifth. Now Burton's gone down, clutching a knee. Left knee. And I'll tell you what, I don't like Bassett up forward. There's bigger news now. Brett Burton is down. That's a terrible... Well, the same into the ground where we saw... Jason Paul Pleasure dislocate his shoulder and the, in the uh, first term, and now they're calling for the stretcher for Burton. Doctors call for the stretcher. That's not good, and this is just a secondary at the moment. The play. I think everyone's concerned about Brett Burton. Yeah, I do. It was a really weird day actually because I remember that we we pulled out of the hotel on the on the bus and we we headed down a side street, and the bus suddenly just dropped. It was a, just the weirdest experience. We were like, whoa, what's happened here? And what had actually happened was at the front wheel of the bus had fallen through the, through the road. Um, and so the, the, oh, wow. uh, the roadway down, down that lane um, was, I think there was, must have been a water leak underneath the road or, or something like that. And so the, the front left of the bus is literally sitting on the, uh, the rim of the bus. And so everyone, you know, started to go over to the left to go, what's going on? And the bus, you know, I was yelling at, no, 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 because it, it was, you know, it felt like it was going to the bus because it's going to tip and roll on its side. So that was the first thing. It was started off as a really weird day. And so everyone slowly got out of the bus. We just called cabs, uh, got our way to the uh, the MCG. Most of us uh, were, you know, quite late in terms of our normal start time. We might have, you know, 
got there only 45 minutes before the game to uh, normal, oh, I think it was hour 40 back then, because you know, by the time you get everyone in hold on cabs and, and whatever else. So that was the, the first thing that was really unusual. And then remember us having a fairly good first half and, and I think that, you know, we were up at half time and I think I'd, I'd had, you know, kicked a couple of goals and so... Four, in um, fact. With four, and I, okay, yeah. So feeling fairly good about myself, I think, at half time. And then I remember coming out at not far into the third quarter and it would... It'd been a wet day and, and I had my screw-ins on and, and the ball just bounced in front of me and then just took a sharp left turn or right turn. I can't remember exactly which way it went, but I literally got stuck in the mud, went to turn and my foot was planted and, of course, my knee just buckled. Um, you know, it's kind of, I was, I was wanting to go one way and my knee was, well, my foot was fixed and uh, it wasn't going anywhere. So, and that was the, it was, it was, look, it was literally the sort that broke the camel's back in terms of knees and, and that's what we, you know, we understand about ACLs is I partially tore my ACL when I was in my second year of footy. So when I was 22 and, and uh, you know, I was 30 at this stage when I uh, I did my ACL. And, and and what, when you talk to the physios and the doctors afterwards, they were like, wow, we've been waiting for this ACL to go for 10 years. You know, it's because it was, it was very loose. So, you know, they, they did a lot of tests where, um, you know, they see how much plays in the knee. And in hindsight, I, I should have got my ACL reconstructed back when I was 22 and my second year of ACL footy. Um, but... Still had that endpoint feel, so it was still intact. But we, you know, I had I had a couple of little cleanouts, and um, you know, the surgeon had said during those cleanouts, your, your ACL was hanging on by a thread. But it was still intact, and I was still able to play for all of those years and and uh, and do what I did. But it was really the the last door that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And and you know, we know that the ACLs, or the theory is that you get all these little micro tears. It's not necessarily the movement that happens, and we analyse movement. And go, oh wow, how did you know how did that happen? But it's literally just one movement of a uh, a thousand that happened that just is the last breaking point. And so, yeah, went down and felt pretty sick and uh, and sorry for myself out of that. But but also knew that been through a lot of injury. You know, I'd missed uh, as I said, all up and out at that stage, probably 80, 90 games to injury, and so. I um, I knew what rehabilitation was like and had an understanding of that, so I knew what was uh, ahead of me. Referee says, fellas, take a break, it's half time. Hey everyone, I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q. I really do appreciate all the support. I trust you're enjoying delving into all things Australian sport and hopefully you will continue to stick around. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now enough of that, let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. When you tore your ACL, as you said you were 30, so you're obviously closer to the end than you are at the start. Was there ever a thought of maybe this is it for me? Not, not necessarily because I I had some fairly good form that they had that year um, only just before the halfway mark or probably at the halfway mark actually I'd play, they'd played the um, I don't think, I think it might have been a hundred and fifty year celebration of AFL and it was the uh, the dream team versus uh, Victorians so I'd, I'd played oh, in that yeah, game that's right. uh, for yeah, the, yeah, that's yeah right. for, the, for the dream team and um, and you know that was just an unbelievable experience you know I, I remember. Um, uh, I was rotating a three-way rotation with from uh, half forward flank, four pocket to wing with Lance Franklin and, and Matthew Richardson, which is just you know unbelievable to, to think you were a playing with those guys, let alone be um, rotating in uh, those positions with them. So uh, I guess I was that 
probably outside of my first year footy, I was at the, the peak of my game in terms of the way I was playing, and, and I didn't think that no, that's it. I, I just oh, well, this is a big, a big chunk out of my year. But you know, I knew that, as I said, plenty about rehabilitation and and knew how to get back from injury. So I, I just thought, well, this is just a blip, and um, I'll come back. And then I thought I still probably had three or four years in me, but as I know now, that need just. You know, I did recover from the ACL, but I just kept on getting out and clean outs, and um, and so that kind of was what stopped me in the end. So, could you give the listeners a bit of an insight into the overall process from the the moment you get injured to the operation, recovery, and then your eventual return? Like, how's that twelve month period happen? Yeah, well, you, I mean, they always like to get you into to surgery straight away and just get the process happening, um, depending on how, how bad the swelling and that is, but. They don't tend to swell up a, a heap sometimes ACLs. It all depends on the trauma and how much damage you've done with the you know the medial ligament, the lateral ligament, and um, and whatever else is in the joint. For me, as I said, because it was li- literally the you know the straw that broke comes back and just the last little uh, fibres that were hanging on, it, it wasn't a, a big uh, amount of swelling or anything like that. So I, I went in literally a couple of days later and, and got the surgery done, and it, you get supported by everyone around you from physios to doctors and rehab guys and strength guys and, uh, and the clubs are you know very good at looking after players even from a welfare perspective so you know go and get the surgery you're, you're home the next day and, and then um, you know we would throw ice machines on you know and, and remember uh, being home for um, literally a month and, and just laying on the couch and interestingly enough I, I yeah, my wife had gave birth to our first daughter um, only I think it, it was literally you know a couple of weeks later and so that that was less in disguise in terms of well you're going to get injured be able to spend some time with your new um your new daughter and yeah so perfect perfect I was, timing I was, yeah I was home at the couch and you know cuddling her and and having this ice machine on you know outside going to the toilet be 24 hours a day and so and um, that's the first thing you want to do is just get the uh, the swelling out of the joint because uh, you know the more swelling you can get out the, the better it is for the joint and, and it helps it to recover so and then just get on the, the process of uh, of rehab and it usually takes around about three months to, to get back running and um, from there you by, by the four or five months mark I think you, you you're starting to change direction and you know, by the nine month mark you, you're starting to take contact and you're building up you know, you've gone through that process so I guess the good thing about um, you know being in a, an AFL club you you've got the you know the best support around you and, and the best experience and, and knowledge and rehabilitation programs so the one thing about ACLs is it you know when you follow a I guess a, a goal-based program rather than a time-based program. It, you know, it encourages you to to work harder, and so those goals are like you know, when as soon as you can single leg squat so many times, you can run. You know, and, and so you, you've got all these milestones along the along the rehabilitation process, and when you tick those off, you can go to the next step. So, for someone like me that thrived on on um, hard work and and you know, I guess built my uh, my game my confidence out of doing the work and, and leaving no stone unturned that um you know that gave me the um the, the ability to focus on something and, and feel like you're, you're always got something to aim for rather than thinking about the, the enormity of a 12-month injury you're literally going well okay what do I got to do this week what do I got to tick off and, and once you've done that you go right hey, what's next and so when you have that mindset and you have that focus it tends to go a bit quicker so is it is it really frustrating when you you're going through all this rehab and you're seeing your teammates out on the field. Is, does that affect your sort of mental state of, of things? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it certainly has an impact. I mean, you're there first and foremost. You're there because you love the game and you, and you love playing footy. And, um, you know, that's why you started the game. That's why you um, 
played when you were a kid, and, and uh, you know, so even when you get drafted, you're, you're wanting to play to the, the best of your ability at the highest level, and so fundamentally, that's what you're there for. And so, when you're not able to do that, that's frustrating. And then when you start to become a you know a regular player on the team and contribute to the team and have a you know have an impact on the result, you get frustrated because you're, you're not doing your bit for the team, and so you know that that does get frustrating because you feel like you're uh, you're letting the team down. So there's there are all those mental challenges and, and things that you, you know, you need to deal with and, and overcome. For me, it was, that's why it's important to, you know, to focus on, well, what can you control and what can you do to, to get back? And, and as I said, spending time looking at the past and what has happened and what might have been is, is not, you know, there's no, there's no value in that. It's really just about looking forward and going, well, what can I control and, and what can I do to, um, to help me to get to where I, I can get to and, and before you can um, you know help others you've got to be able to help yourself so you know most of the time it was you might have spent a, a day or two um, you know wallowing and, and being your own self-pity but um, pretty quickly uh, you know I would move on and I guess that's the value of team sport and then having that, that network of support around you but also your teammates around you to um, pick you up when you're down and, um, and get you moving forward. So you did eventually return to the side and, and you returned at a really good time. So your first game back was round 16, 2009. And when you return after such a long injury, are you nervous? Is it excitement? Like, do you almost hesitate when you're changing direction or going into packs? What's that sort of emotion like when you when you finally return? Six, of course, of Mark Bickley. There's Burton coming on. His first run in 12 months. Round 15 last year since he last played. Brett Burton recovering from that... Total knee reconstruction. Thompson, look at this, Burton, with his first kick on return. Will it be a goal from 50 metres out? Got a good shape about it. Mark on the line, Stevens play on goal, Adelaide. Brilliant stuff from defence. Burton here with his first kick, looked a bit rusty, didn't really come off the boots uh, that well, but, Jared, you spoke about before the game as Stevens puts it through from great back, electrifying ball movement by Adelaide and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, it's definitely one of, of, of nerves and, and excitement and, and all, you know, a bit of trepidation in terms of going, well, you know, are you going to be able to do what you, you did before? And, you know, there's, a, I guess, in the back of your mind, you're going, well, is the is knee going to hold up? For me, it was, I didn't have too much of that anxiety or, or, or hesitation around the, the knee and the rehabilitation because I'd done the work and because I'd had, as I said, that those, those goals based initiatives and, and set of time I'd ticked off all those things you had strength measures you know, you know you'd done the testing in terms of ensuring that you had one knee and the muscles around it was as strong as the other one so there was certainly no hesitation from that point of view it was more just you know when you're out of the game for that long long a time you, you know it's just all the timing and you know reading the fly of the ball and, and getting used to contact and all that kind of stuff that I guess takes it takes time to get back to and, and my first game was back at, uh, in the SNFL at the Eagles where you know I hadn't played there for a while so that was it was good to go back there, and I remember just having a, a really good game the first game back, and I think I did pretty well in terms of on-field performance, and, and we got the win, which is great. And then the next week, you know, I was flat as a tack. I just, I, I just could not get out of get it out of my own way, and, uh, and I was, uh, you know, just had a really flat and sluggish game. The second game of the NFL, but the uh, the club uh, picked me in terms of uh, AFL, and I was back in the pro side my third game of back in footy, and. And, and that was even worse. I, I remember playing uh, at St Kilda at Eddie Hatt Stadium. We got absolutely thrashed. I played forward and um, it was just one of those games. I reckon I uh, stood the mark about 40 times. I was kicking across the, across the oval and just chasing them. And, um, I yeah, was, and St Kilda were undefeated. 
Yeah, so we, we just got pumped and, and uh, I had uh, an awful game, couldn't get uh, get near it. When I did get near it, I was fumbly. And, and so it just goes to show how hard it is to you know, play at that level and play when you're not you know used to the weekly you know playing and getting used to hits and, and, and that kind of thing. But So that was, was the most enjoyable result. But then I think the fourth game back, we played uh, in a showdown and suddenly the form started to come back. So... And um, once you once you get to that stage, you know you, you have a good game. You're like, oh, okay, right, that gives you the confidence. You can do it again, and uh, and off you go. And you know we played in the finals that, that year, but went down to Collingwood, I think it was, in one of the finals. And so I think only you know I don't know how many games I got in, maybe six or eight or something like that for the year. So that the season was over um, pretty quickly for me. Yeah, and you mentioned that you you know as the season went on, you started to pick up the form. One moment in 2009 that sticks out in a lot of people's mind, and I've been really excited to talk to you about this. So, <laughs> round 22, 2009 against Carlton, you take, in my opinion, the greatest mark I have ever seen. Simon Goodwin bombs it inside 50. You jump on Cruiser and Tippett's shoulders, so the Ruckman's shoulders, and you get the second rise once you take the mark. Do you actually remember that moment? I haven't had enough yet, Tippett. shoulders, tipping and Cruiser in front of them and then got the lift. That is classic Birdman. Oh, he got the second rise once he was on top. I can't think of a better mark than this. I don't, I'm not sure I've ever seen a better mark. That's an unbelievable mark. Well, funny enough, I do. You know, I do because I, again, it's one of those funny stories where it was just a bit of a weird experience. You know, it was, I can't remember what game it was. I think I came back around 15 or 16 or something like that. And so it was my sixth or seventh game in. And because of the way my body was, I was always, you know, I would, I would spend literally four or five sessions with a physio every week getting uh, my body right. And I just had one of those bodies that was high maintenance, basically. You know, the, the guys used to laugh at me and say, well, you, you know, you, you're built like a, you know, a racing car. You want to move around like a racing car, but you're... You're like a Datsun 140B, you know. You just don't have the the the, uh, the grunt in terms of the the muscle bulk and um and the, the strength endurance. You know, I had the uh, the aerobic capacity and 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 I guess average speed, but I just um you know physically wasn't put together in terms of being strong and 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 in, in, you know strength endurance. And so I was always having to get physio and get treatment and do all my portability and, and all that. But I um. I had a tight hamstring. And so the, the runner had been out and said, what's going on? I said, oh, my hamstring's just tightening up. And, and the game at that stage, you know, I think we were up by a fair bit. And, um, and so the call come back from the coach's box to, um, you know, to come off um, when you get an opportunity and, and uh, just rest it up. And, and so I was literally sitting at full forward, just um, waiting for the opportunity to, to get off the ground. And, and uh, sure enough, some good we got it. was coming down the, the wing. And, and one thing we knew about Goody was, uh, you know, he just had a booming left foot. And, and more times than not, he kicked long. And so it was just one of those things where the ball come in. And, and again, I just threw, uh, I guess, habit always, uh, you know, jumped uh, at the ball and tried to take the ball at the highest point. And, and that point in time, just was really lucky to get a ride. And, and uh, as you said, just got that second lift, which, you know, is rare and, and doesn't really happen uh, that often. And, and really, it's just luck. So um, the you know the the, uh, the world's just aligned at that that point in time, and I got a bit of a push up there and uh, on the ruckman and got the extra boost, and yeah, the rest is history. So talk us through it. So Goodwin bombs it in, and you're about to you and four other guys are about to go for it when you leap on their shoulders and and you feel the ball into your hands. Is that just? Is it all just? momentum are you nervous at all like when you come down are you really thinking about it when you go up for it is it or is it just all momentum no it's just you don't think about it at all all you think about is there's the ball trying to get your timing right and just as i said i always just 
always just launched myself, you know, what it, wherever the ball was at, I always just, uh, you know, launched myself, whether that was people in front of you or no one in front of you, I always just tried to jump and, and take the ball at the highest point, mainly because that was, as I said, that was what I was taught by, you know, my dad at a young age, and that's what I'd practice over and over again. And, and it was from a technical point of view, was, you know, the higher you jump and the higher you, you stretch your arms out, the, the more chance or less chance the, uh, your opposition has of, of spoiling it. And so that was really just, um, when, when you're, you know, late in your career, you've done it so many times, you just it's just automatic, and you certainly don't, you know, look at the players in front of you so much. It's more just, um, you know, they're there, and, and so you, I guess you do try and launch a bit higher because you, you can you, you sense that there's people in front of you but you, you literally you know as soon as you take your eyes off the ball you, you're gone so you have to look at the fly of the ball and, and, and make the ball the focus and you know I never feared coming down it was one of the things that uh, never worried me and, and look you, you don't even get time to, to, to think really it, it all just happens so quickly and that I guess what you do do experience when, when you jump and, and you do get a ride is you do for that fleeting moment to hear the noise uh, and, and that's I guess what always gave me a buzz was, um, you know, you would hear the roar of the crowd and, and the kind of the gasp of the crowd when you when you did jump, whether you were able to hold on to it or not, you, you know, that all just happens really quickly. And so that was always pretty uh, pretty cool, um, you know, thing to experience. And, um, and so I do, you know, I do remember that. And then unfortunately, when I come down, I, I went back and I missed the goal. <laughs> that wasn't that was yeah, ideal. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, you did too, didn't you? Yeah, you did I, I did push it to the side. <laughs> anyway, I did go chat the bench after that, so I did get to um, sit down and, uh, and watch watch the replay a couple of times. So yeah, would you would so. you would you consider that your best mark? Yeah, yeah, that was certainly you know in my first year of footy, I was. <laughs> it was funny when the in, in when I first started playing in '99, they used to have a mark of the week, and it was sponsored by Cadbury, and so that they would that they give out a thousand dollars for mark of the week and they'd send you a whole heap of box of chocolates to the footy club. And so I won five marks for the week in my first year of footy. And you still have some chocolates and, now. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and then and then they would give a mark of the group, which was, I think was every five weeks, so going through the final series. So every five weeks, out of that, they'd go, okay, well, out of those, from rounds one to five, who was the best mark out of those ones, one to five. And so I ended up winning three of those, three of the marks of the five, which they gave five grand for. So I was five grand plus another, you know, 15. So I'd won $20,000 my first year of, uh, of AFL footy and then got all these chocolates. Just unbelievable for, for someone that just started their footy. It was just a very surreal experience, I suppose. So I went into the, uh, the uh, you know, when they did the judging, I had three of the, the five uh, marks going into the, back then it must have been the footy show or, or um, yeah, whoever might have been Channel 7 or Channel 9. And, and so I, I went in with three out of the five. So I'm thinking, well, I'm picking two chance. And Matty Lappin was actually the best mark of that year, so he won that, the mark of the year. But it was, you know, I, I guess from a volume point of view, I, I, I did take some marks uh, in that first year. And as I said, you know, it's made a whole lot easier when you no one knows who you are to you in first year of footy. But certainly um, that was the best, you know, mark in terms of, you know, getting the ride. And, and as I said, it was you know, a fair bit of luck involved. But um, you take the luck when you can get it. Yeah, it was good fun. Yeah, so in your career, you're obviously most famously known for taking those unbelievable marks, and that's what you were renowned for. Where did I know you mentioned a little bit earlier, but where did you get that leap and aerial ability from? Did you you, you obviously did practice as a kid, but have, did, were you always just had that aerial ability and that athleticism? Yeah, look, I think it was that my parents obviously, you know, both sporting, and uh, and my dad was a very good footballer in, in Wyala. He played for Central Wyala, and, and then late in his career, he played for Rapina. And then we moved down to Adelaide, he played for Central Park, and so he um, played until he was 35. And 
when he was in Wyler in his prime, he played in a lot of association games and stuff like that. So he was a very good footballer, but then unfortunately, um, you know, had a knee reconstruction. I think he's in the early 20s. That certainly impacted the way he moved. You know, back then when you had a, a knee reconstruction, it was, you know, you literally almost like you're in a cast. You, you didn't recover from it as well as, you know, well as you do now. So I, I had that background from my parents. In terms of the jumping, you know, my dad certainly didn't say that he jumped, but I think, uh, you know, my, uh, his dad for my uh, my grandpa might have had a, a bit of a spring in him. But, it, yeah, I think it just largely came from, as I said, just that habitual uh, practice, just, um, you know, jumping at the ball and, and uh, as high as I could uh, when I was a kid at, at school and then uh, also um, in the backyard and in the front yard, just kicking the ball up to myself and, and running and jumping. So... I think that's you know, largely where it comes from. And my, my vertical leap wasn't the best going to the draft camp. And, and I think you know, a lot of people can, can jump and, and would have jumped, you know, jump higher than me. But, you know, there's a, there is a lot in the timing. And uh, I think that does, you know, that, that just comes from practice. Before we get into the final stretch of this incredible chat, we need to take a final break for three-quarter time here on A5Q. Now, as I'm sure you're all aware... I love podcasting. It really is an enjoyable ride and a chance for me to share my passion to the world. So why don't you do the same? Whether it be a sports podcast like mine, a comedy podcast, an educational podcast, a movie, TV show or gaming podcast, or even if you just want to get a few friends together for a weekly chat, it doesn't matter what your podcast is about. What matters is setting it up through Podbean. Podbean is the best and most certainly the easiest way to start a podcast. And the best part of it is, it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg. If you hit up my special link at www.podbean.com slash A5Q, you'll have the choice of starting your brand new podcast for as little as $9 per month on an annual plan. Now that is an unbelievable price, considering you'll get unlimited storage, beautiful podcast themes, you'll be able to map your own domain, comprehensive podcast stats, and podcast monetization. Now, guys, I tried to set up my podcast with a few other websites and just couldn't work it out. It was way too complicated, but Podbean was just so simple, so easy to use, and it produced the results for me. So definitely, if you've been thinking about starting your own podcast, but you've got no idea how to go about it, visit www.podbean.com slash A5Q and get started with Podbean today to join the Pod family. Or if it's easier, the link will be in the description below. But in the meantime, let's get back to the show. 2009 ended quite sadly, really, with the the Jack Anthony goal and the semi-final loss. And 2010 is your last season in the AFL, and and it was pretty much a, a disaster, really, because it seemed like the club initially felt they still had one more shot at a premiership, and it just fell apart very early on. Six losses to start the season, and yourself, McLeod, Goodwin, and Edwards all retire throughout the year. How do you look back on that? final season? Yeah, look, it was. It was 2009. We obviously made the final. We check out the goal, obviously, you know, towards the end of the game. Again, just moments of time and you sort of take your opportunity. So you, you you win that game and you never know what happens the next week. But it was, it was certainly a time of transition and, and you know, various guys have lost form and, and uh, injury and you know, Adam McLeod hasn't really had any injuries in his career, nor was Todd Goodwin, but they were both out with injury, and uh, and obviously, you know, it had been a custom injury, but my my, uh, my knee had just, um, you know, given up, really. It had just kept on having to get clean outs, and I remember playing early on in the season, but I couldn't even kick 35 metres, which was just giving way on me in the knee, so I ended up getting a clean out, tried to come back from that clean out, and I think my first game back at, in the SNFL, I... Um, 
did the syndesmosis injury and, and, and we didn't know it at the time and, and syndesmosis was really, uh, they were new type of injuries and so tried to get myself up and play for the next week and um, ended up doing further damage and, and so that was the end of my year and I guess just gotten to the point where the guys around me that I played such a long time with in Goodwin and Cloud had, had decided to pull the pin and, and retire and you know I was 32 years old and, and maybe a year before would have thought I was going to play for a bit longer and and, and not as old as those guys and hadn't played as long as those guys. So I felt like I had a bit more time in me. But the reality was my my body was starting to uh, give up on me. And, and also mentally, I just had enough of, of rehabbing. You know, as I said, I missed over 100 games of injury. I just got to that point in time where I went, you know what, I've just had enough of, of this. And, and mentally, I was just ready to give it away and, and focus on life after footy. Um, I wasn't necessarily enjoying the challenge of rehabbing myself and, and going through that process um, anymore. And so... It, it all just made sense. Um, you know, the club was going to start to go through a bit of a transition with those four guys, and also Trent Henshaw was finishing up as well. So it was a, a big, uh, a big change in terms of where the footy club was going. So um, it just made sense to pull pull stumps there and um, and look to the, to the next part of my career. And what about the lap of honour after the the St Kilda game? So final game of the season, yourself, McLeod, uh, Goodwin, and Trent Henshaw get a standing ovation. I was I was at that game. I do remember it. What what are your memories from that from that moment? Yeah, you know, you've certainly hit the nail on the head there. Look, it was an unbelievable experience. Probably the most memorable night of my life, really, to be honest, outside of having kids and uh, and that. It was just, it was a phenomenal experience for a, a number of reasons. Firstly, because to have all those guys, um, Edwards had had his retirement early in the year, but to have McLeod and, and Goodwin and myself and Trent Henschler played uh, a lot of footy together, to have uh, us all, you know, finishing uh, on the last game and be injured um, was, was, was unusual in itself. But the second thing was that the club was had made a decision during the week to do the lap of honour at the end of the game, um, which was which was unusual. You know, normally you do the lap of honour at halftime or before the game, but, you know, they wanted to... Um, provide an opportunity for uh, a bit longer and, and for people to, I guess, stay and, and recognise, particularly McLeod and, and Goodwin, you know, I mean, I was, I was lucky, you know, Trent and I were really just along there for the ride, that those guys had obviously had a, a significant impact on um, that footy club and they've had 300 plus games and, you know, premierships and Norm, Norm Smith and they have many All-Australians he won and, and Goodwin was, you know, I think he was 260 or 70 games and, and five All-Australians and captain of the footy club, so... That, that had a really large impact on the game and Trent and I were kind of steak knives. We just got thrown into it and we were, we were lucky to be part of the, uh, part of that celebration. But what unfolded was quite unbelievable as you kind of highlighted before. St Kilda were, they were up and about in 09, 010 and played off in, in the grand finals in those years. That young side that played that, that day for the Crows beat St Kilda in the last game of the year. And, and, um, you know, to think that uh, that team went on to, to, as we know, play off in a drawn grand final. You know, the boys were able to, to win that day and that made the uh, the celebration even more unbelievable and I think there was, you know, maybe low 30s, maybe early 40,000 people at the game and I think by the end of the game they reckon it was 50,000. There was literally people coming at, at half-time because um, the Crows were winning and, um, and obviously provided a, a better experience to be able to um, come and see the Crows win uh, in the last game of the year and, and also um, send off Chicken McCout and Goodwood. So just remember that was just an unbelievable experience. And, you know, we went back to the new, what was the new Crows shared after the game and, and had a uh, show there and it was just a, a special moment and, um, and really well done by the footy club. Uh, a great way to um, you know, celebrate uh, those guys' uh, achievements over a long period of time. Yeah, fantastic. 
obviously you, you were at Brisbane and then you came to Adelaide post-playing. You were, of course, involved in the much-spoken-about Crows pre-season camp. Now, I gather, it's not, I gather it's not something that anyone involved with the club enjoys talking about, but if you're okay to talk about it, was that camp really as negative as it has been portrayed to be? It's been an intriguing year for Adelaide Crows supporters. They were the team of last year. They had a bad grand final day, but it's fair to say there has been some drama this year. It almost started the day following the grand final, continued through the pre-season and lingered, frankly, for most of it. Enough has been said on the matter, and I'm not going to delve in it again tonight. Before we acknowledge we made some mistakes. That's what humans do. In our drive to improve in our program, both in our physical and our mental side, um, in hindsight, seeking gains, maybe we pushed too far. And that I regret. And here's the problem. Sorry's not enough. Sorry is not enough to that group. The sorry part of it, the forgiving part of it, the managed part of it from here moving forward, I think from what I've heard is problematic. You're and problematic for me means change or leave. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's on the record now with the um, Safe Work SA, um, you know, finished up their investigation of the camp two weeks ago after, uh, you know, a 15-month investigation. So it's been investigated by them. It's been investigated by the Adelaide Crows Integrity Committee. It's been investigated by the AFL Integrity Committee. So we've had three you know, reviews into it now and, and all of those reviews have, have come up with no been no wrongdoing and, and no one's to be held account. And no, the organisation is, uh, you know, from a... Certainly from the, the Workplace SA um, report, there was no um, workplace health or safety issues that were done wrong or, or, or any wrong doing um, cause. So um, I think it's plenty of people spoken about and, um, and the commentary around it, it was, it was largely driven from um, social media and, and hearsay and, and rumours. And, and that's the world we live in now is that with the, uh, the advent of social media and the internet, things can spread very quickly and the, uh, what can be considered fact is, is really just rumours and, and innuendo. So there's no doubt there, there were some people that uh, didn't enjoy the, the experience, but as I've you know, been quoted on a number of times, uh, that you take any group of 40 people on any experience, you know, whether it's football or, or not, some people enjoy it, some people won't, and some people will be like, whatever. You can't keep everyone happy all the time, and um, and so uh, history will show that we, you know, we dropped off our, over those years, and 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 look largely the distraction that in the that the media caused, and and from that camp with um with the, the majority of the issue, and it's good to have that come to a close, and um and everyone to go right. Well, hopefully it doesn't get spoken about again because it um it, it was you know a really negative time for the footy club, and some you know obviously a challenging time for, for the footy club, and and some people that were hurt through that period, and and some some people that lost their jobs, myself included, but. We, we move on, you know, That's uh, as, as I said before, you know, I'm a big believer in the fact that there's no point looking at the past, you, you move forward and, and for me, in, in my life now, you know, was it an enjoyable experience to go through to, to get, um, you know, sacked and, but by the by the club that you've, you're a life member at and, and that you're, you know, largely had a good experience with and, and playing off in the grand final? No, it wasn't, but at the same time, I'm really thankful for the opportunity that I've, that I've got now and, and, you know, my life is so much more fulfilling doing what I'm doing now, spending my time uh, educating people on you know, how to care for their well-being and, and support their mental health and feel as though um, kind of been a bit of my calling to be able to uh, get into this space and take my learnings from um, my own career, my own dealings with anxiety, my own you know, experiences in um, you know, caring for, for young young men in, in football, family and friends around, around as well and, and seeing 
their challenges with mental health. We know that it's a big issue that you know, we're facing as a community and um, even more so now with you know having to deal with COVID over the last couple of years. So it's a really big challenge and been involved with an organisation called Breakthrough Mental Health Research Foundation over the last five years. And, and so I've become accustomed to hearing the, the statistics around that, um, around the, you know, the really dark end, which is uh, you know suicide to so just the, the stats around, you know, kids and, and adults dealing with anxiety and mental health issues and it's just it's obviously very profound in our community. So really enjoying passing my, my knowledge and experience and, and uh, you know, doing my re- my research in that space and, and so from, from a, a bad situation comes for me a really a really good journey and really positive part of my life. So yeah, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah, very well answered. And and there is something I do want to uh, speak to you about on that front uh, in just a moment. But just before I do, I just have one last question, if I may, about the camp. When it was uh, made official a couple of weeks ago that there was uh, you were cleared of any wrongdoing, mm-hmm. was that emotion like was that relief for you of a sense of vindication? Like how did how do you explain that emotion when you didn't do anything wrong? Yeah, it certainly wasn't one of of relief because. Look, you know, in my mind, and, and certainly in, in everyone that was involved in terms of putting that, you know, that together, and, and what happened on the camp, and all that kind of stuff, there was never any doubt in terms of. Look, clearly, some people didn't enjoy the camp. We, we, we know that, and and you know, but in terms of, was anyone done wrong by? Was there anything that was uh, morally or ethically done wrong? No, there wasn't. And so, there was there was no sense of, I guess, relief. It was more a bit of vindication, um, you know, but even, even that, been that far removed from it. Over the last couple of years, I really haven't thought too much more about it, you know, really, to be honest. And and as I said before, there was already a couple of investigations. You know, the AFL don't muck around in terms of their integrity. You know, they're, they're clearly there to make sure that young men are looked after and, and even the Flower Association for that matter as well. That, so there was no sense of holding on and going, you know, hoping that this comes out all right. It was, it was really just a fait accompli, really, to be honest. Yeah, fair enough. Just as we're talking about the mental health state of things, um, obviously it's a massive issue these, these days and I think in some way everyone is dealing with some form of mental health. You know, I myself have days where I feel really good. There might be other days where I'm feeling a bit down. If, if there might be some listeners out there that are doing it tough at the moment, what would your sort of advice be to them or, or if they have family or friends that are doing it tough? What's something that you, your, what would you advise to somebody that is having a tough time in life at the moment? Yeah, it's a good question, Daniel. And, and what I would say to, to that is that absolutely we, we are all doing it tough at different stages. And I think that's a it's an important thing to recognise, you know, when we when we when we talk about you know well-being, uh, you know, well-being put simply is um, your ability to to feel good and function effectively, and and that word uh, ability is is important because it, it means that we do ever flow with our well-being, and and you know well-being encompasses your you know your emotional well-being, your physical well-being, your mental well-being, even your financial well-being. So it does encompass you know a, quite a lot. And so we need to understand that we're, you know, we're, we're ever flowing on that, you know, depending on our, our situation in life, depending on some people locked down in COVID at the moment. If you're in Melbourne and Sydney, you know, if you're in Adelaide and Brisbane and Perth, then you're okay, you know. So it's, it's very situational. It's very, you know, circumstantial as well in terms of if you're living in, uh, you know, in Adelaide with three kids, then life's not as tough as if you're living in Melbourne with three kids because you're, you're homeschooling them and looking after them. And so what we've got to recognise is that everyone's going through struggles at different time and, and I think that one of the uh, the misconceptions or one of the things we need to understand is that social media's had its positives in terms of what it's been able to provide and connecting people but we also get this misconception that by looking at other people's 
Facebooks and Instagrams and, and all these other platforms post that life's good for those people, you know, and because we only ever see people posting good stuff about, you know, look at me here or I'm holidays here or I'm eating here and they're doing this, you know, and so we don't often see the, the negative of, and when people are struggling, but the reality is everybody's got different struggles at different times and so it's important to recognise that and uh, because, you know, we can get down on ourselves when we think that, oh, look at everyone else, they're doing okay, but I'm not. So that's probably my first comment to that one. The second one would be that is reach out. You know, you, you've got you've to talk about it. You know, we know that science says that emotions are, are not meant to be bottled up. We've got to let our emotions out, whether that's good emotions or, or not so good emotions when we're feeling sad. It, it's not good to, to hold them in. And, and, you know, we know that particularly men are, are not great at doing that. Women are, are tend to be better at expressing their emotions, but we've all got to express our emotions and, and, and let, uh, let go of that emotion, that tension. So uh, reach out and, and have a conversation with, um, you know, with your family or friends. And, and then if you when you're thinking about your family and friends, be attuned to uh, how they're acting and how they're behaving because, uh, you know, we're the, we're the best kind of check in on, on each other and, and know you know, when you're a good friend or and you're a close family member, you know when someone's, you know, behaviour's changed a little bit. Uh, and obviously uh, the mental health of, of a lot of people has been challenged over the last 18 months with COVID. And so it's important we, we continue to check in each other and, and you know, make that phone call and, and uh, have that coffee and, and just uh, look after each other because they are heightened at times in terms of our sensitivity and, and uh, I guess, abnormality in terms of general life and so um yeah that'd be uh, i guess uh, the main point that uh, I'd, I'd want to push across to uh, to people that are struggling at uh, at any time in life beautifully answered absolutely and uh brett just we as we are now about to close up i just got three last questions for you and I always finish off my episodes by asking my guests these three questions in your entire career in the afl who is the best player you ever played with and why Who's the best player you ever played against and why? And lastly, who is the best coach you ever played under and why? Okay, the best player is always tough, isn't it? I mean, I played with so many good players. It was probably the first few would, would be, you know, McLeod, Goodwin, Rashudo, Jarman would be, you know, in, in, in that group. If I had to pick one, I would probably say McLeod. You know, he was just, he was just a freak in terms of his skills and, uh, you know, his ability to be able to, Play forward, play on ball, play half back. He was just, and his ability to impact games, you know, he, he needed to win a couple of North Nests. So he was able to change to get change a game and, and impact it as good as anyone at all. So yeah, I'd say probably have to say into the cloud. This club every played again. Yeah, again, difficult because, you know, I wrote early days I was tagging, you know, um, I guess my ability to run, um, Glidey played me in, um, in a tagging position and, and so, I'd come up against guys like, uh, you know, Buckley, who was just a, you know, really tough competitor. So, you know, guys like him. And, and then when I moved forward, it was probably guys like Darren, Darren Glass, um, you know, that just didn't give me an inch. They didn't care about getting kicked uh, the footy or possessions. They just cared about stopping you. And so, um, you know, it's always difficult when you've got a, a someone that's such a good stopper as a defender and, um, and that. So that's probably the, those two guys that certainly stand out. Uh, and then the last question around my best coach, Look, you know, again, I um, every coach that I had, uh, you know, and I've, I've had three of them with with uh, Blighty and Ezzy and Craig. You all, all provided different things for me. So as I said, Blighty just, you know, he backed me in and, and he gave me the confidence to play that I wanted, uh, how I wanted to play and and play attacking footy and and, and jump from mark. So I really thrived in, in that. Um, Ezzy played me on the wing and, and gave me more more freedom to play uh, you know, in, that, in that wing role and, um, and gave me the structure and, and understanding of being disciplined. And then uh, and then Craigie, 
he really drove the standards really high coming from a from a background in Olympic sport. He'd been at you know, the Olympics in, in 2000 with the cycling team with Charlie Walsh. And so he taught us about professional behaviours and professional habits and the ability to be able to be elite in, in everything you did. And so um, I learned a lot off it and, and the uh, the opportunities that, you know, came about from that. So um, hard, to, hard to pick one, but definitely took um, you know, something to reach on them. Birdman, it's been awesome to have you on the show. I really do appreciate your time and I wish you all the best in everything you're doing now out of football and, and I respect you very highly for everything you're doing now in the mental health uh, side of things. Thank you very much for your time tonight. No worries, thank you. Thanks for having me and, and hope you're right. Uh, enjoy the uh, enjoy chat. And that's a wrap. Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time.